Do you? All right. It's a, it's a great story to tell. And did you catch in that song that it's kind of not just a one-time story? It's a story worth repeating. It's a story that when you get together and you're having a conversation with somebody, that story is a good thing to start with. Um, we say that fellowship doesn't just happen. Fellowship isn't getting together for a meal. We used to call them fellowship meals, and all we would do is we would get together and we would eat. But I'm a firm believer that there's more to fellowship than just food. We fellowship. Fellowship doesn't happen unless we've talked about God's Word. We've talked about that old, old story. So it is certainly something that we enjoy doing and we, we strive to do. In fact, it goes along with our new series that we're starting today. I've given you the title of the series on your page, but I haven't given you... I'm not talking to you, Alexa, or Siri. Go away. Um, but anyway, uh, I've given you the title. It doesn't give away the book that we're heading to, but it allows you to start thinking about what we're going to talk about in the next several weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about joy. And you know what? The essence of joy is that old, old story. If you don't know that story and can't tell that story from your own perspective, you're not going to have the joy that we're talking about here this morning, and the joy that we're going to be talking about uh, in the next several weeks to come. I recently had some people, more than one, ask me uh, about joy. And what is the secret to joy? How do you maintain, not, ta- not saying that I have it all the time, how do you maintain this joy? And, and I remind people often that our joy is not dependent on our circumstances, Neither is our joy dependent on the situation that we find ourselves in. Joy is not dependent on our temporal accomplishments. You know, you know that I'm a big sports fan, and I love to watch sports, and especially when my team wins, and my team generally wins when they hit home runs. And so I love to see the stats that say how many home runs and all of the runs batted in, all that kind of stuff. But those are temporal accomplishments. Those are not going to last into eternity. The stats aren't going to heaven with you. Your accomplishments are going to stay here on earth. So our joy is not dependent on those kinds of things. It's not even dependent on our feelings. Lots of times people think joy is an emotion. It's really not. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is a state of being. Joy is a realization of the fact that we will spend all of eternity in a place called heaven, and more importantly than the place, the person we'll spend it with, and that's God. Forever, all of eternity, in the very presence of our Creator God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So joy is not dependent on our feelings. It's not dependent on how others treat treat us. Joy is dependent on whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. This past year and a half, it has been a challenging year, has it not been? We have faced things that we will never hopefully face again. We have been told that we are in a pandemic. We're told that things are, are just so bad that we have to do these certain things. And you know what? It's taken a toll on people. It's taken a toll on our nation. If you listen, and you have to be careful when you do it, if you listen to the news, you will hear how bad it has been, especially from a mental health perspective. There's been an increase in suicides because people don't know how to deal with the conditions that have been placed upon them. Our joy is not dependent on whether or not we're in a pandemic. In fact, it is our joy that should help us navigate through the pandemic, regardless of whether you get COVID or you don't get COVID, whether you think it's real or you think it's not real. We're not having that discussion or that debate, but what we are having is a discussion about when we feel we are in dire straits. We don't have to throw our hands up and say, I don't know what to do. We can bask in the joy that is ours because of what Christ has already done on the cross of Calvary. 
And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've heard me say this before, you have no reason not to be joyful. The only reason you and I are not joyful, and I say this to myself as well as everybody else in this room, the only reason we're not joyful is because we've chosen not to be joyful. Because God has given us everything necessary to be joyful, despite the situations we find ourselves in. Many have lost their joy. They've lost their sense of contentment with what's going on in their lives. And as Christians, we don't have to be in that boat. We can be in the boat that has labeled joy because we can choose to be joyful. And I believe that it's true that God has given you and I everything necessary to be joyful. But we know that's not always the case, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we're honest with one another, we can, we can admit that we're not always joyful. So why not? Well, first let's take a look at what joy means from a biblical perspective. Joy is meant to be a hallmark of the Christian life. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right, kids? If you were to give the little uh, analogy or the lessons that Mrs. Maher has been teaching on Sunday night, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Yeah, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. So it should be evident in our lives. It's a fruit of the Spirit and it's a gift of God. We best receive this gift when we focus on the truth of who God is. When we commune with Him through prayer and rely on the community of believers that God has provided. That's what keeps us joyful. When our focus is where it ought to be. And add to that, that our joy is based on the fact that we know no matter what's going on in life today, it does not infect or, or affect or impact where we'll spend eternity. If we know Jesus as our Savior, where do we spend eternity? In heaven with God. So nothing that goes on in the here and now on this earth takes that away from us. Can you say hallelujah? Okay, because that's what your response should be when you know that nothing can take your joy away from you or stop you from getting into eternity with God if you know Jesus as your Savior. Now, we've already mentioned that just because it's true doesn't mean that it's always a reality in our lives. Listen to this observation. You know, I like the, the place called gotquestions.org. They made a pretty uh, astute observation about joy in relation to those who follow God. People who have lost their joy. There was a guy by the name of Job. Anybody know who that guy is? Job wished he had never been born. Why? Because he lost his joy. Check it out, Job chapter 3, verse 11. There's another guy by the name of David. David prayed to be taken away to a place where he would not have to deal with reality. <laughs> Ever been there? Psalm 55, 6-8, one of the many places where David confessed that that's what he would like have to have happen in his life. Elijah. A man, after defeating the 450 prophets of Baal, having one of the greatest spiritual victories in his life, what does the Bible say he did next? He ran away and he pouted. He hid and he pouted. He had what we tell our kids, the poochy lip disease. <laughs> Woe is me. Nobody likes me. What am I going to do, God? I'm all by myself. No, you're not. No, you're not. Don't let Satan get you in that spot. Because when you're in that spot, you lose your joy. Don't think that you're only, the only one who has to stand all by yourself. You never are. God is always there with you. And the Bible is pretty clear that there's always a remnant of faithful people who commit their lives to serving God. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, and then he, he got, it got so bad that Elijah asked God to take his life. God, I'd be better off dead. No joy. So we, we find ourselves sometimes in a place where we lose that joy. The good thing is, 
It's really only a prayer away. We confess. We ask God's help. He restores our joy. He gets us back focused on what needs to be focused. And here's another statement or observation from God Questions. It says, another way to experience joy in the Christian life is through community. God gave Elijah rest and then sent a man named Elisha to help him. And God also reminded him that there were 750 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's community. That's where you gather. That's, that's where you get encouragement from. And you know what? We don't have 750 people in our, in our worship center this morning, but we have plenty of people here that can encourage one another. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake your assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Why not? I don't feel like going to church today. The writer of Hebrews says, you need to be there because your being there encourages others and it's an encouragement to you. And you need that so much more as the times are getting worse and worse and worse. We don't think that you need to come to church just so we can keep track of your attendance. We think you should come to church because you are an important part of this family. And by your being here, you are encouraging others and you are being encouraged by those same people that you're trying to encourage yourself. So the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how we may stir up one another to love and good works by not giving up meeting together as some have fallen into the habit of doing. Gathering together is essential for the child of God to grow in his relationship with God. So as you can guess, I mean, I've kind of already given it away, we're going to start a series this morning that talks about joy. And it's not a simple study on joy. It's a study from a book whose theme is all about joy in Jesus. We sing a song, There is Joy in Serving Jesus. Okay, if you haven't, if you haven't, if you've forgotten the words to that, uh, take a hymn book and open up to that page and and remind yourselves that there is joy in serving Jesus. No matter what's going on in life, there is joy in serving Jesus. This New Testament book was written by an apostle, born out of due season, is the way he described himself. He's a he's an apostle who. As we look at and study his life, we might scratch our, our head and say, man, why does that guy have joy anyway? He had so many things going on in his life that he has no reason to be joyful. But he reminds us that our circumstances in life, they can be the things that rob our joy because God wants us to be joyful people. We don't have to let that happen. To be more specific, he wrote the book that we're going to start studying this morning while he was in prison. I'm reminded of, of Scott's friend, Victor. Every time Scott tells me about Victor, there seems to be a, a sense of joy in his life about what God is doing in and through him and how God has changed him. And where is Victor? He's in prison. But the prison doesn't rob him of his joy. The prison allows him a, an avenue in which he can serve and where God is preparing him for future ministry, perhaps. We don't have to let our circumstances rob us from joy. Yes, by now you should have come to the conclusion that the author we're talking about is Paul. And if you don't know the book, he writes in this book, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. No matter what, Paul is telling the Philippians to rejoice because our God is great and we have so great a salvation that nothing, should take our joy away from us. So if you have not yet done so, please take your copy of the scriptures and open to that prison epistle from the pen of the Apostle Paul, the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. I don't have it on the screen, uh, but would you stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think of you this way, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace." For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve all the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are so thankful for the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Paul explains to us in this passage of Scripture that we just read that, that the joy that we have from Christ is evident and is even made perfected, is even perfected when we love one another. First, we love you because you first loved us, and then we love others because you loved us. Father, I ask that you'd help us as we work our way through these verses this morning. Encourage us through the pages of Scripture. Challenge us if need be, but help us, Father, to leave here different because we spent time together in the Word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul is saying to us here in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 1, Consider your standing in Christ. Understand who you are because of what Christ has done for you. So in verse 1, you and I, as we read through this passage of Scripture, we see our status, our status. You know, when I was growing up, there were certain things in school that were a status symbol. If you had red tag Levi's, not J.C. Penney jeans or Sears and Roebuck jeans, but if you had the leather patch on the back, and not orange tag, by the way, either, red tag. Didn't even have to say Levi on the tag. Some of them did, some of them didn't. It just had to have that little red tag sticking off the back of your pocket. That meant something. The other thing that meant something was those white leather sneakers that had the red swoosh on them. That was before Nike became what Nike is today. But if you had the Nike shoe that was white and had the red swoosh on it, oh man, people thought Converse were, you, you know, I, I have to laugh because today Converse is the status symbol. When I was growing up, Converse were for people like me. Didn't have a lot of money. But now you pff, try to buy a pair of Converse, Chuck Taylors, you're going to pay, you're going to put out a, a fair amount of money for those. But you see, status, we all want to have a certain status in life, right? Well, Paul is reminding the Philippian believers what their status is in Christ. Who are we in Jesus Christ? Paul says, well, first of all, we are servants. He identifies Timothy and himself as servants and encourages the followers of Christ in Philippi to also be servants. Paul says, we are Bond servants, not just any kind of servant, but a bond servant. Paul used that word for bond servant, which is doulos. Okay, doulos. It describes a servant who willingly committed himself to serve a master that he loved and respected. A bond servant or a doulos is one that is not seeking his own freedom, but he's content to be in service to his master. See, he's a servant by choice, not by force, not by compulsion. He's serving because he had the opportunity to be freed. 
You know, in the, in the seven year of jubilation, all the Jewish servants had, by Jewish law, were to be released from their bondage. But if you didn't want to be released from your bondage, you could go to your master and you could say to your master, I want to stay, I want to continue being a servant. So you know what your master would do? He'd take you over to the doorpost, he'd grab you by the ear, and he'd put your ear up against the doorpost, and he'd take an awl and a hammer, and he'd drive that all through your ear. In other words, you had a pierced ear for your master, and it identified you as belonging to him forever, at least for the rest of your life. You chose to be a bondservant. Why? Because your master cared for you, made sure all your needs were met, took the very best care of you and your family, and you enjoyed your service to him. Hmm. Paul's not just saying that you're a servant of any kind. He says you are a bondservant. It was a serious commitment for life. William Barclay makes these observations about the difference between a servant and a bondservant. You know what another name for a bondservant is? You might not like this. It's not very popular in our world and our culture today. Slave. That's what a bondservant is. A bondservant is a slave. And can I just say, (laughs) as a slave of Jesus Christ, you got all the reparations you'll ever need. You don't have to go looking for something else. God has given you everything you need. And you know what's so blessed about being a, a servant of God, a slave of God, is that he often gives us what we want, especially when our wants line up with his desires for us. What does Barclay say makes the difference between a servant and a slave? Well, a servant was not or is not necessarily a permanent position. A slave is a permanent position. Now, think about that in relation to the spiritual life that you and I have. Our slavery to God, our life in Christ is not a temporary position. It is permanent. Again, that's another one of those praise God, thank you Jesus for giving me eternal life. You're in the family of God forever. It's a permanent position. It's a permanent place. A servant was paid an amount of money. He got a certain stipend, if you will. A slave, he was owned. That's not necessarily a bad thing, though, because your owner took care of everything you had, everything you needed. He took care of your personal needs. He took care of your family needs. He took care of your, your housing needs. He took care of everything that you needed. You didn't have to worry about going to the store and buying what you needed. It was already there. The needs were already met. A servant could at some point choose a different master. A slave however, is tied to his master for life. Thank you, God, that I'm tied to you for life. And you know what? It also works the other way around. God is tied to me for life. We're in this relationship that is never-ending. Now, I know that in our world today, slavery is a bad thing. And I'm not trying to change the perspective on that. But I'm just trying to remind you that as a child of God, as a slave to Jesus Christ, you're in a pretty good place. You can't get any better, in fact. We are slaves. Paul called himself a bondservant or a slave. And he set a good example for us to follow. All of us should desire to be like Paul as a slave of God. Now, with the concept of being a slave... It means that we place ourselves under God's great care and trust him with our lives. There's nothing better than to trust God with your life. You know why? Because he doesn't make any mistakes. He never stops caring for us. He never stops loving us. He is taking the absolute best care of us possible. A slave of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul then addresses the saints in, in Philippi. 
He calls himself a slave and encourages them to be slaves. And then he calls the, the people that he's writing to in Philippi saints. This is, another, one of the, this is the other side of the coin, if you will. Not only should we be slaves of the Most High, but we are saints as well. So think about that for a moment. Saints. Now, we don't go around calling people saints in our church. Like Saint Ben didn't lead the worship this morning. Just Ben led the worship this morning. And we acknowledge our humanity, our frailness, our, pre- our tendency to sin. And so we don't boast about the fact that we are saints. But we know that that's our position in Jesus Christ. We also know that we don't have at our business meetings a time where we confer the name saint or the title saint on so-and-so. It's not a man-recognized position. It's a God-given position. God calls us saints. In fact, if you were to jump over to the book of 1 Corinthians, you would see where Paul addresses the Corinthians. Now, think about the Corinthian church for a moment. They were not the most spiritual lot, right? They struggled in their walk with the Lord. They struggled in growing in the things of Christ. But Paul addresses them. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what is he saying to the Corinthian believers and to those of us who read this text? You're saints. And to those everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a saint. Doesn't mean we always act that way. But you know what? If you're here this morning and you're not a saint, and I don't mean by behavior, I mean by position. If you're not a saint, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to become a saint. What it means to become a follower of the one true God. We are saints. You know, I often hear about people who refer to themselves as less than a saint. A person who has professed to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they struggle with wherever they are in in, in life. The lot that they have uh, found themselves in at the moment is discouraging. It's depressing. It's distressing. I got to tell you. That doesn't change your sainthood. In fact, it ought to lift you up. It ought to encourage you. Uh, it, it ought to bring joy to your heart to be reminded of the fact that you are a saint and not because I say so, but because God says so. A saint. Don't feel bad about yourself. Don't, don't, don't be bitter about where you are. Remember that you are a child of God and you are indeed a saint. And don't forget that. Also, don't forget this. That word saint comes from the Greek word that we use for sanctification. As saints, we are set apart ones for the service to the one true God. Ken Weist says this, Saints are believing sinners set apart from sin to holiness, set apart from Satan to God, thus being consecrated for God's sacred fellowship and service. The word saint as a designation of a Christian brings at once to our attention the duty of every believer, that of a living a life separated unto God. A holy life. We are saints and we are in a position that says, hey, God has placed us there and we'll never be taken out of that relationship with him. Paul also addresses the leadership there in Philippi. He says to the bishops and to the deacons. This word bishop is one of the three words used in the New Testament to speak of the office of pastor. The word bishop is translated as overseer. It speaks to the area of leadership or the activity of the office of the pastor. One who has oversight of the, of the ministries of the church. The deacons are the other half of that leadership team. The idea of a deacon is that of a minister or one who is a servant leader. As Baptists, we hold to these 
two offices being the only offices of the church that are dictated for us or explained to us in Scripture. Now, we have other offices in our church. We have a treasurer. We have a church clerk. We have trustees. Those are offices that we chose to put into play in our church because it helps us function better. But they're not God-ordained offices. They're not called-out offices to uh, to be involved in the spiritual leadership of the church, although we want everybody to be involved in the spiritual growth of our local body of believers. But as Baptists, we believe that those are the only two offices ordained by the state. In fact, the office of trustees, you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. The only place you will find that is in the Constitution of New York State, which requires uh, churches to have trustees to be nonprofit organizations. So the trustees is a state position. It's a state-appointed office. Now, we've combined those two here at Calvary Baptist Church, and we have the deacons and the trustees serving in a role of spiritual servant leadership. And I'm thankful for our men who volunteer to carry out these responsibilities. So he's, he's greeting the people there at Philippi. He's calling them saints, and he's reminding them of their position in Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we see Paul's salutation. Paul's greeting his dear friends there in Philippi. He wants two things for them, only two. He, he doesn't have a big wish list. He simply has two things that he's asking God for, for his dear friends and his fellow believers there in Philippi. Uh, And as they read this letter, he says to the Philippian saints, he says, I want this for you. I want God's sanctifying grace to be evident in your life. This idea of grace from the pen of the Apostle Paul is a common desire that he writes to the New Testament churches when he, when he writes to them to admonish them and encourage them. He wanted his fellow believers to be aware that they were the benefactors of God's grace. That you and I, as those who have named the name of Jesus Christ, we enjoy his favor Even though we've never done anything to deserve his favor or to earn his favor, we have the opportunity to enjoy his favor. This word grace is an interesting word. It reminds us that we are recipients of God's unmerited favor. And not only is it unmerited, but it's unmeritable. In other words, I haven't done anything to deserve the grace of God. And in fact, I could never do anything to deserve the grace of God. Why? Because I am a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. So as one who has been the recipient of God's unmerited favor, I thank God for his grace. But you know what that means? That means that as a believer, as a recipient of God's grace, then that grace should begin to characterize my life. We should be demonstrators of the grace of God. You and I know about this amazing grace. We sing about it. God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Wow. So that grace then, as I've received it and incorporated it into my life, ought to be flowing out of my life. Those that I interact with, those that I contact, those that I make a, a, a part of being in my life should understand and see the grace of God coming from me. That doesn't stop there, though. Those who are outside of the church should also see the grace of God in my life. I should be telling people about this great grace, and then when they look at my life and, and see me, they should see that grace being demonstrated in my life. As one who lives in the light of the grace of God, we should, we should be contagious. Huh. That's kind of a strange word to use this time, isn't it? But yes, the grace of God should be something that is contagious in our lives. If a couple people demonstrate the grace of God to others, it rubs off on them. And then you know what? They might come to know Jesus as their Savior. And they should then start rubbing off on other people. The grace of God should be such a prolific thing in our lives. That sanctifying grace that causes us to look more and more like Jesus every day. So we have this sanctifying grace that Paul is asking God to grant 
or to enhance in the life of the Philippian believers. We also see that Paul wants the Philippian believers and you and I to have this thing called steadfast peace. You've heard it maybe said that peace is a fleeting thing. It's not something that lasts for a long period of time. Well, if you have the peace of God in your life, it should last forever. You see, the the steadfast peace that Paul is talking about is the result of knowing that our sins are forgiven and there's nothing that can take our salvation away from us because we didn't do anything to earn it. It was simply a gift from the most gracious creator, God of the universe. That grace and peace is a result of the faith that God has given to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, because you and I have the peace of God in our lives, you know what? We should be agents of peace. Like we're agents of grace, we should be agents of peace. We, the peace of God should be flowing out of us as we interact with others. Why is that so important? Because everywhere we look today, there is discord and division. It's rife in our communities. It's rife in our nation. It's rife in our world. That's why we have wars. That's why we have this country siding with this country against this country, which is already sided with that country. We lack peace. But as the children of God, if we are agents of peace, if the peace of God is seen in us, it gives us opportunity to communicate peace to others. In fact, Paul's going to talk about that later on. In in fact, in chapter 2, which we'll get to in a bit. But let me just share this little foreshadowing, if you will, of what's to come in the book of Philippians. Paul says this, Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests in others. In other words, Paul's saying it's not always about you, but in fact, more often, it should be about others. People often talk about, well, and I heard this even yesterday, as a Christian, I have certain rights. I don't know. I think we gave up those rights at the cross. And we ought to be thankful that God takes care of us and gives us what we, (laughs) because if you really want to talk about rights, you know what you have right to? Death, separation from God in a place called hell. I'm not not putting my hand up for that. I don't want that. I'm thankful for the grace that God has extended to me. So it's not about what is my right, but I should be looking out for what others need in their lives. If you read much from the Apostle Paul, you will learn quickly that he's always about others more than he is about himself and his own feelings. If peace is to prevail, we must seek the things that honor the Lord and consider others better than ourselves. And that steadfast peace will then be a reality in our lives. Well, as Paul moves on in this opening section of the book of Philippians, we see that the, we see the importance of stating thankfulness to God in verses three through eight. Paul has fond memories of ministering with his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ. That is going to become more and more clear as we work our way through the next couple of verses of chapter 1. And first of all, we see that Paul is thankful for the fond memories. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. What is Paul thankful for? Well, I think Paul... He doesn't list the things necessarily that he's thankful for, but as he's writing to the Philippian believers, I think God is bringing things to his mind about what was accomplished in the lives and the ministry of those in the Philippian church. Remember, Paul was instrumental in starting the church in Philippi. Okay, So maybe this memory flooded into Paul's mind when he met Lydia and the others at the riverside when they were praying. And he communicated the gospel to them. And Lydia and her family came to know Christ as their their Savior. Truly, that must have been a joy to lead a whole family to Christ. I mean, 
I can think back over the years of our ministry and, and the different things that God has privileged us to be a part of. Um, seeing brothers and fathers come to know Christ as their Savior. Seeing families uh, desire to be obedient in the waters of baptism. Seeing people who had never heard the gospel before uh, being introduced to the gospel. And then you, you forget that they never grew up in a church setting or even in a country that, that taught them Sunday school stories. And you talked about somebody named Moses and they said, who's that? <laughs> you had the privilege and the opportunity to just simply explain and teach God's word to them. What, a, what an amazing joy that is. And it makes your heart happy. I think maybe uh, Paul sitting in prison after being beaten because he was a follower of, the G, of Jesus Christ, never did anything wrong. And yet he was thrown in prison, and not just in any place, he was thrown in the deepest, darkest part of the, the prison. And while he's singing away, I wonder what kind of voice Paul had. But anyway, while he was singing away, an earthquake happens. The prison is so rattled that the doors of the prison open up. And the bonds that are holding them in place, probably chained to a wall, fall off. And all of a sudden, the prison guard is about ready to end his life because he knows, as a Roman guard, that if prisoners have escaped on his watch, he will be put to death. So he's going to speed up the process. He's just going to take his own life. And all of a sudden, from the deep, dark dungeon, Paul says, Hey, hey, don't do yourself any harm. Who's that? It's, it's me, it's Paul. You mean the nut guy that was singing songs? Yeah, that was was me. So they come out of the prison and they share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. And he is so overwhelmed by the grace of God and the goodness of God that he says, yeah, you guys, you guys need to come to my house. He takes them home. He washes their wounds. and, And Paul again shares the gospel with him and his whole family. And they all get saved and they all get baptized. Hallelujah! Because God is at work. But what was Paul focusing on? Not being bound to the prison walls. He was focusing on the goodness of God. And what God can do in an individual's life. You see, sometimes we focus on the things we shouldn't focus on. And that's wrong. And that robs the joy that we need to have in our lives. The jailer came to know Christ as his Savior, even though Paul's life, from a human perspective, stunk. But he didn't take that into account. He faithfully served his God. He got his eyes off of the chains, and he got them on the Savior, and the Savior did incredible things. As Paul recalled this memory, his heart undoubtedly filled with joy in spite of the beating that also probably flooded his mind. He probably said, I'll take it again for the cause of Christ. It's safe to say that Paul derived joy from ministering to people that God brought into his life. What a blessing to be involved in ministry. We also see that Paul was thankful for God's finishing his work in Paul's life. The finishing work of God in our lives. This made Paul confident. Did you see that what we read in verse 6? Being confident of this very thing or being confident of this one thing. Paul says, if I can't be confident about anything else, this is what I'm confident about. I'm confident that he who began a good work in me and in you will perform it or will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Whew. Nobody's going to stop it. Nothing can stop it. Paul was confident because of three things here. Let me tell you the three things Paul was confident of. He was confident of the person that does the work. Being confident of this one thing, that who? God began a good work in you. The person who shared the gospel with you didn't begin that work. God began that work. 
in Paul's life. God began that work in the Philippian jailer's life. God began that work in your life and in my life. I'm very thankful for the Sunday school teacher on that Sunday morning who shared the gospel and God used that in my life to bring me to salvation. But she didn't save me. She was a tool that God used. The person that does the work is God. The work of salvation never begins with man. It always begins with God. In fact, it began in eternity past. God's plan was to reconcile lost man to himself. And he knew that he was going to use his son on the cross of Calvary. So the person who does the work should bring us great confidence That's why when we go out and we share the good news, we communicate the gospel, that's all God asks us to do. It's not about the results, because we can't make those results happen. Only God can. So it's the person who does the work. We also know that Paul is confident because of the one that performs the work. You know what? The same person who started the work also performs the work. The word until in that verse there, verse 6, It actually means as far as. So God will continue the work. God will do the work as far as when you see him face to face. And then the work will be finished. God is not going to stop. God brought us this far and he's going to take us the rest of the way. He won't stop. (laughs) Yesterday at the conference, we were supposed to start the conference off with a song. And the, and the guy gets up there to lead us in the song, and he's doing the introdu- introduction of the song on this guitar, and all of a sudden, doing, he stops. Oh, he says, I'm going to have to throw a curveball to Dr. Vogel. He says, we can't finish this song because my guitar string just broke, and the song will sound awful without this string. So we'll sing it later. You see, The guy brought us all the way up to the introduction of the song. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a good song. We're going to enjoy this song. Toing. Guess we're not going to enjoy the song. Okay? God doesn't work that way. God brings us this far, and he's going to take us all the way to the end. He's going to finish the work. In fact, that's the last thing Paul's confident about. Perfecting the work. God will complete the work until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's, as John says, when we see him face to face. In fact, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, saw, Paul talks about the day of Christ there. He says, Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't have to make myself blameless. Good thing. You know why? I can't. Not possible. But God has made me blameless through the work of Christ. And as I mentioned in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know, here it is, hold on to your seats, we know that when he is revealed, in other words, when I see him face to face, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Here's the thing. This is the heart of our joy. Being like Christ, when we see him face to face, that's what gives us joy. The fact that I know that will happen, I know that will be a reality in my life, that brings me joy. And because this is true, we can soldier on, we can move forward in our walk, no matter how bad life gets. Because our joy is in Christ and not in circumstances. Well, let's take a look at the last two verses and, and what, is, what does Paul say here? Let me just read them because it's been a while since we read them. Verses nine, uh, 9 through 11 of chapter 1, we read this. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
What's Paul saying here? Paul's, Paul's saying that the Philippian believers are already doing a good job loving others. But you know what? He challenges them to love even more. Why? Because there's always room for more love. There's always room to grow in the area of love. Paul gives us some areas that we can grow in love in and even some help in how to do that in these two verses. First of all, he talks about an intimate relationship. Paul encourages the Philippians as you and I to increase in knowledge, but not just any kind of knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of the love of God in their lives. The love that Paul is talking about here is not a feeling-based love. It's not based on what we might read in a book or hear from a person or see on TV. It's not that kind of love. It's the highest form of love. It's based on an intimate understanding, which is the result of a close relationship. Can I say this? The closer we are to Jesus Christ, the more we will understand the love of God. If, if we're not close to God, we'll just blow the love of God off as like any other kind of love there is. There's so much more to it. The love of God is based on that intimate relationship that we get and we have, first of all, because of our salvation that God has called us to a life in Him. But secondly, as we learn more about Him, studying the Word of God, learning the Word of God, applying the Word of God, that relationship grows deeper. Our knowledge of who He is go, grows greater. And we know then how much he's loved us and the fact that he's called us to love others in the same way. So it all starts with an intimate relationship. And then we see that it also has to have a proper realization. Paul says, I want my readers, I want you Philippian believers, I want those who will read this text later on down through the course of church history, I want you to increase in discernment. You know what that does? That takes love to the next step. It's the practical application of love. We, we say that we love one another, but what does that look like? Well, we read it in that, you know, that verse that everybody likes to quote. Even, even unsaved people know this verse. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here we see God's practical application to our need. God knows what we need. He knows we were sinners. He knows we were without hope. He knows that the only way to provide a solution to that is through sending his son. So he sends his son to earth, not to have a party, but he sends his son to earth to die in my place. Wow. MacArthur summarizes these two ideas this way. He says, Love is not blind, but perceptive, and it carefully scrutinizes to distinguish between, between right and wrong. You see, love takes into account right and wrong. Not what I think, but what, what is right and what is wrong. How do we know what is right and wrong? We must come to the book. We must base our convictions of right and wrong on what the book says, what God says in his word, not on what I think is true from my experience in life. And then we see, as a result of this selecting to choose love, we see real results. The result of this kind of love is seen in verses 10 and 11, where Paul tells us we need to be able to approve the things that are excellent Approve the things that are excellent. Knowledge comes into play here. I need to know what is excellent. What is excellent? The things that I read about in God's word. In fact, we'll get to that in Philippians chapter 4. In fact, let me just read it for you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul tells us what is excellent. Finally, brethren. Finally, those of you who know Jesus as your Savior. And then he lists off several things there in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 8, he says, 
Whatever things are true. See, God places a priority on truth. And truth is pretty absolute, right? It's found in Scripture. I was reading a comment. In fact, uh, one of our professors posted something about another professor. Uh, Doc Carter used to teach us in, in history of world civilizations. He used to say, all truth is God's truth no matter who discovers it or no matter who says it. All truth is God's truth. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things, meditate on these things. These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, those are the things that are excellent. Those are the things that Paul says you and I, as followers of Christ, must approve in our lives. That shows our love if we approve those things. He also says, be sincere without offense. So now we're moving from knowledge to discernment. We must be sincere without offense. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, the church is working and getting better, but we need to get even more better. That's not right. More betterer. The church has to get better at this. We often are really good at giving the truth and being sincere about it, but then we become offensive about it. The truth is often offensive, but we don't have to be offensive in our deliverance of it. So he says, be sincere. Be committed to the truth without being offensive about it. Well, more discernment is seen by when he says, be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Being righteous is meaning I become more like God. I become more like Jesus. That that shows my righteousness. So I'm filled with the fruits of righteousness. And what is the end result of all of this? He says in verse 10, it's to the glory and to the praise of God. You know, when you communicate the truth and love as we've been directed to do in the pages of Scripture, God is glorified in that. And God gets praised because of that. So the the real results are seen when we choose love over everything else. Now, I'm not one to say, you know, we we need to choose love and let truth go by the wayside. I, I don't agree with that. You know, we live in a world where that's what they want us to do, but they're not looking at the right kind of love, for one. And for number two, they don't really care about the truth. You and I must love one another. You and I must love those outside of the body of Christ. And that love is seen when we speak the truth for the well-being of another person. So as we wrap this up this morning, what are the key things that we want to take home about maintaining joy? Well, if you and I can develop the kind of mindset, uh, I think our lives can be transformed when we, when we come to this idea of joy. First of all, there's five things uh, that we've already talked about. Just let me review them. We are saintly servants. We are not just slaves, but we are serving the master that we love and honor and want and demonstrate respect to. So we're saintly servants. We are also, number two, the benefactors of God's grace. A gift that we certainly do not deserve, but, excuse me, it results in something that eludes those outside of Christ. That is peace. You know, we know people who need to understand what the peace of God is. But until they come to an understanding of who Jesus is and they accept him as their Savior, that peace will always be distant from them. This peace that we get comes through Jesus Christ. And because of that peace, we can be confident no matter what in the fact that you and I will spend eternity with our Savior. The third thing is we need to be thankful people because God allows us to minister to others and that ministry gives us incredible memories, incredible joy through those memories. Also, we have confidence. 
As a child of God, we have confidence. Have you ever noticed how those who are full of confidence have no worries? Or at least they present themselves as not having anything to worry about. They're confident. As individuals that God has begun his work in, we can be confident that he will continue to carry out his work of sanctification in our lives. Now, granted, sometimes we get in the way of that sanctification process. And we need to be careful not to do that. But we can be confident that he will carry out that work in our lives until he takes us home when it is complete. The moment we step off of this earth's crust and step onto the shores of heaven, the work of sanctification is complete and we become like Jesus Christ. The last thing that will help us keep a check on our joy level is love. There's nothing that brings joy to one's heart more than being loved, except maybe for doing the loving. If you know that you're loved, that brings great joy to your heart. But you know what? When you start loving others, that has the potential of bringing even more joy to your heart. A quick way to forget about your own woes and sorrows is to go out and find someone to demonstrate God's love to. Are you still praying for Cindy and her cousins? Cindy? And that wasn't part of the, that wasn't planned in the service, by the way. But you see, the joy that comes when your focus is where it ought to be? Loving others and seeing others come to a better understanding of who Christ is and hopefully to the point of salvation. That's what brings joy to our hearts and it even brings some emotion with it, right? Yeah. Find somebody to demonstrate God's love to. That's what's joy. That's the outworking of the joy of Jesus Christ in our lives. You see, we live in a world full of hurting people. We, need, we, we live in a world who need to be loved by God. And God wants to love them. But they need to know that. And sometimes people get so caught up in the things of this world that they don't even think about God. And sometimes they see us as Christians acting in a way that doesn't suggest that there's a loving God out there. So we need to make sure that we are people who are focusing on the joy of Jesus Christ and the joy that he alone can bring to us. And that we need to find people that we can love and communicate the love of God to and help, help them to understand that they too can have this joy that fills our lives. When you're loving God's way and you have an opportunity to minister to someone, you create one of those moments that I think Paul was talking about when he said in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. What joy that brings to our hearts. Cindy? Jonah. Jonah.
Amen. Thanks, Cindy. Uh, for those of you who couldn't hear that on the live stream, Cindy's been sharing the gospel with her two cousins. One has leukemia, and the other one uh, also needs to know the Lord as their Savior. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a challenge for her, but it's been a joy for her to see God working in their lives. Um, so we, we praise the Lord for that. And, and it's, it's just the practical outworking of what God does in our lives when we allow him to work in and through us. Even sometimes when, we, when that might not be our first choice. So thank you, Cindy, for sharing that with us. Um, so yeah, we want to be involved in the lives of others so that when we look back on the life that we've lived, we can say, I thank God for the joy that he has brought into my life for the privilege of working in the lives of others. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for the reminder about joy. Father, we need to be joyful people. Now that doesn't mean that everything in life is going to be easy and fun and carefree. doesn't mean we're always going to be happy. But you don't command us to be happy. You command us to be joyful. And so, Father, as those trying things in life come our way, help us to process them through the lens of your goodness, your grace, your love, your mercy, and to realize the blessings that are ours and the joy that is real to us because of a relationship with you through Christ. Father, we do want to pray for Ray this morning and the struggle that he is having with leukemia Lord, we know that you are God who can work miracles. You're still in that business. There's a miracle of his health needs at this point, but there's also the miracle of his spiritual needs. If we had to choose one for you to bring about sooner rather than later, we'd love to see you bring him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But sometimes the one's tied to the other, and so we pray that you would work in his body, that he would be able to have moments in time where he is able to think clearly and converse with Cindy or with someone else who can share again the good news with him. For Roger, Lord, we thank you for the testimony that is given there with him seeing in Ray's life a willingness at least to listen to the gospel message. And we know, Lord, when the seed is planted that it accomplishes what you send it out to accomplish. So we pray for both Roger and Ray that they would see their need of Christ and that you would do a work in their physical lives as well as only you can do. Father, thank you again for this church family. The love that is here. I was just talking to somebody this morning and they, they said, boy, it's, it's like a family here. And Father, that's a blessing to be part of a church that is a family. We ask that you help us to continue to love one another and to work with one another and to Uh, be used by you to reach our communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, you're a good God, worthy of all of our praise and all of our glory. And we ask, Lord, that your grace and your love will be evident in our lives and, and that will rub off on others, that they will see the goodness of God in the lives of your children here. Thanks for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ben's gonna come and lead us in our closing song.